What's happening? Welcome to Wong Notes Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Wong. Today on the podcast, we have a modern-day legend, empire builder. You could even call him the Walter White of jazz, funk, fusion, pop, world, music, whatever. Michael Lee. This dude is dope. Ground up, snarky puppy, Bacante. Ground up is the uh, you know the umbrella of all these projects that Michael is kind of the nucleus or whatever of. And this stuff is all so dope, and it's so musically rich and deep. And I knew him initially from Snarky Puppy, and I've just been such a huge fan from the first time I ever saw him. Absolutely incredible. And I'm sure anybody who's listening, if you're into this podcast, if you saw and clicked on a podcast with Michael League's name, I'm sure you know who Snarky Puppy is. They're incredible. So I don't need to introduce them that much. Michael's incredible. Really fun hang. This is actually our first interaction together. A lot of people have asked for like a Snarky Puppy Wolfpack crossover. And we have the Fearless Flyers, which Mark Letieri plays medium-sized guitar in, and I play the small guitar, the regular guitar in Fearless Flyers. So that's the closest we've gotten to a, a crossover. But man, this was fun to chat with Michael. So thanks for hanging and listening. This is going to be a great episode. I, um, it's going to be great. Episode. I can say that because I did the interview like a month ago. Anyways, thanks for being here. Hey, if you play guitar, I've got a brand new guitar course out. You can check it out. CoreyWongGuitarCourse.com or just search Corey Wong Guitar Course in your browser and you'll find it. It's on sale right now. I feel really great about it. Whether you're somebody who's just kind of like feeling pretty good with your hands on the instrument or you're even up to an expert level, there are tons of lessons. It is for you and I guarantee you, I'm putting that men's warehouse on it. Guarantee you will be a better, more precise player when you finish all those lessons. And there's a lot of principles of practice in there so whatever instrument you play, wherever you're at, just general principles and structure of how to practice better, how to get much better at your instrument in a fraction of the time. How about that for a tagline? Okay, that's straight off the dome. Without further ado, Michael League. This season of Wong Notes Podcast is brought to you by DistroKid. If you're not familiar with DistroKid, it's who I use to upload my music and whatnot to the internet. So I put out an album, DistroKid will send it to Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon. With other services, sometimes they charge you by the album per year. So like you have five albums out, they'll charge you for each album every year. With DistroKid, it's just one yearly fee. As many albums as your band has, they can be up there. And that's just one cost. I love it as somebody who puts out a lot of music. And if you're in a band or that sort of thing, you can actually pick your team and they'll do splits for your team. So you can choose this person gets 25% of the royalties, this person gets 25%, this person gets 2% because they didn't contribute to the group project or whatever. No, 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 no. You can choose whatever percentage you want for as many collaborators as you want. So it's amazing. Check it out, DistroKid. Let's get to it. Well, Michael, thanks so much for being with us today. Uh, what a treat to have you. Transcontinental. You are in Barcelona right now? <laughs> yeah, I live like one hour from Barcelona. That's great. What prompted that move? 
Um, I, I came to this little tiny village that's got like 450 people um, like eight years ago because I had to write an album for Snarky Puppy with the Metropole Orchestra called Silva. Um, yeah. And the the woman who kind of connected Snarky Puppy with the, with the Metropole, Friederica Darius, um, had like a summer home in this village. And she said like, don't write a symphony in New York. It's not, it doesn't make sense. You need to go somewhere chill. So she said, I have this yeah. little house, take my keys, go there, write. So I went for 10 days, I wrote, and she never asked for the keys back. So I just kind of kept coming and kept coming, and I made friends, and uh, I was kind of like homeless a little bit, uh, you know, over the last 10 years. So when I didn't have a place to stay, I would just come here after a tour or something. And uh, and then like two years ago, I, uh, a little more than two years ago, I, I, I bought a house. So yeah, and I made the move from New York. Nice. Okay, so you are somebody who has... I am I am uh, maybe to a fault also somebody who writes a lot and puts out a lot of music, and I am most of what I do do it under my own name. Mm-hmm. You have a lot of different projects. You have a lot of it seem you seemingly have a lot of bandwidth for a lot of different things. I'm curious for you, what keeps you going, and what is it that keeps you motivated and driven and creatively charged? Um, music. <laughs> I think. <laughs> I mean, it really uh, is that simple, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess I could try to say something else to sound deeper, but I, I think that's just that's just it. You know, I mean, I, I I feel like when music is happening, and and not just sound, but you know, when like music, the magic of music is happening, I don't get tired. I don't get hungry. I don't have to go to the bathroom. Sometimes I forget that I have the flu. I I don't know. You know, I think most. Yeah, musicians can relate to that feeling of like all your bodily processes kind of like stop or slow down and you're like in this under this spell. And so for me, that's kind of how uh, what inspires me to keep doing things and to do different things is just like the feeling of hearing beautiful shit. Can I say shit on this podcast? Sure. Cool. Speaking of curse words... (laughs) Did you did you did you grow up playing in church? Um no. I grew up I grew up being bored in church. Um and then sure. when I was like 16 I I started playing and I played at a black church in in Vienna, Virginia, uh, First Baptist of Vienna. And then when yeah. I went to university, you know, I went to school in Texas and like the you know the biggest industry in Texas is religion, so I was playing like three church gigs a Sunday, playing church gigs on Saturdays and Wednesdays also, playing revivals yeah. four days a week sometimes and Yeah. So but it wasn't a thing that I grew up doing, it was a thing that I like learned to do, you know. Yeah. Now, a lot of people that play in churches, they're hired to do it, but also a lot of people are that's a big part of their life and they're hired to do it. It is a job, but it's also just like a a youth pastor or whatever. It's like, that's their job. They're hired to do it, but it's also a passion and whatever. The reason why I ask is because for me, I, one of the interesting things, so I didn't like, my parents didn't force me to go to church or anything growing up. I just kind of like decided that I wanted to. Yeah. And I've gotten a lot out of it. And I, well, that's, that's the wrong thing to say. I feel like I've found a lot of uh, the things that I've needed to find about myself from going to church. Anyways, doesn't matter. No, I know I I agree with that. I mean, I, I mean I I would say that, you know, so much of what I'm trying to do on stage anytime I play music is is actually 
trying to get a hold of that feeling that I have felt so many times playing in churches. Yeah. And I think, you know, in the church, they assign it to, you know, the the death of a person 2,000 years ago on a cross. But like every church is doing it, you know? <laughs> you know what sure. I mean? Like we, you go to any church and any religion in the world and 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 they're all kind of tapping in to this certain thing. And it's happening at every concert. It, sometimes it happens at sporting events. You know, I remember the first time I saw Lionel Messi play in person and it, it was actually that feeling every time he touched the ball. Yeah. It was like that feeling of tapping into this, this thing that is, um, you know, I don't even want to assign words like greater than us or bigger than, I mean, it's just a thing. Yeah, yeah. It's a thing that we have access to when we put ourselves in a certain space and it moves us, it moves molecules within us. And, 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 um, and in that way, church would absolutely be on my list of greatest influences, you know? Yeah. The other thing about it is, so, you know, like part of why I asked, if if there's anything that keeps you more creatively charged or keeps you motivated, one of the things that I learned about in church and really connected to was the things that we do tying to something bigger than yourself, mm. like you're saying, like yeah. something greater than yourself or something, you know, like playing for your country is more than just, uh, you know, playing for, you know, whatever. You're playing hockey because you're good at hockey or whatever. But, you know, like with in church, you know, you you're serving a greater purpose, you're a part of a community. I think for that, a lot of people that grew up playing in churches or had that experience, there is a certain awareness of, and not that every, not that it has to be a religious tie-in at all, but I think there are certain um, ideals or there are certain things that we can tie ourselves to or latch on to that will help give us a greater purpose in the music that we play. Oftentimes it is a, a religious thing, but there are so many more things like joy or mm. a sense of like justice, you know, sure. like think about Bob Dylan, you yeah. know, like Bob Dylan, his music, and there's so much music in different eras or Joni Mitchell. There are so many things that to me have that, yeah. but it's not necessarily religious. I was curious if there's that sort of thing for you. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a lot to, to unpack. Um, <laughs> uh, that's like four pa podcasts worth of content. I think that you just kind of like laid the groundwork for, but I, I, I think that things can be complicated and things can be made more complicated based on their environments. And I think that, um, it's 2021, there's Instagram, there's YouTube, there's Grammy awards, there's TV, there's radio, there's record sales. There's all these different ways of analyzing and seeking meaning in what we do. When I say analyzing and seeking that like, there's all these different ways of analyzing our success, which you could also kind of make, maybe substitute the word value, uh, you know, sure. and then you could also maybe substitute feeling of self-worth <laughs> as a musician, you know, there's always these that different- goes, That goes to a completely different level. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. And, and those, all those things can be related, you know, that as musicians, yes. normally when we have a bad gig, we don't go home and said, I had a bad gig. You normally say to yourself, I'm a bad person. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because it's like totally impossible. It's funny how that works. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's completely impossible to separate our musicianship from our feelings of self, like our, our self-esteem or our feelings of like kind of are of, of valuing ourselves. And so now with Instagram, you know, how many followers, you know, YouTube, how many views, uh, record sales, how many, you know, analytics, all this stuff. Am I making money? Am I blah, blah, blah. 
And there's all these different ways of analyzing who we are as musicians and how we're doing as musicians. It becomes very easy to lose track, I think, of what is a musician mm -hmm. and what is music and why is music. And in these moments, I always kind of go to this other space, which is like I think about history and tradition because these are very, very important things in every day in my life, they become more important to me in terms of finding where where I need to go. Um, that looking backward for me is always the clearest way to find the way, uh, to find the, the, the path forward. Yeah. Um, and really, if we look at ourselves in that way, in terms of, in a, in a historical sense, we are descendants and followers of a certain tradition. And, you know, you can look, 10 years back to find what tradition that is. You can look 50 years back, you can look 150 years back, or you can look 15,000 years back, you know? And so mm -hmm. I, I try to remind myself in, in convoluted moments of like, really what is the origin of this tradition that I'm following? Who is my ancestor, you know? And, and in that way, I just always go back to cave people, more or less, sure. you know, like the first human being that made deliberate, sound and why did they do that and how did that turn into an art form and 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 kind of like you know there's going to be more question marks than answers but i think you can come up with some you can kind of infer some 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 reasonable answers which is that music is about communication it's about practical communication um it's about conveying a yeah. clear a clear message from one soul to another soul and you know and probably it's maybe it started as like you know, holy shit, there's a lion that's about to eat you, you know? And and then maybe in a certain moment it developed to be like, wow, I really feel uh, liberated or connected or I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm tapping into spaces of myself that I previously didn't tap into when I make this noise, when yeah. I yell this thing or bang this rock or whatever. And, um, and in those convoluted moments of where I start getting down on myself because of my you know, whatever, my social media failures or or lack of sales or lack of fame or whatever, you know, going back to that space kind of always gives me solace um, in thinking yeah. about like, why do we do what we do and what's what's the meaning of it? And that's probably not what you were going after with that question. But I, but I think that when you're talking about church, I think it's just an extension of that. I mean, the only kind yeah. of weirdness becomes the association of like... Yeah you know, we're all tapping into the same feeling. Um, and then we just associate it with this kind of like son of God, or we associate it with, you know, blah, 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 which is cool. I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, but I do think it's interesting that me as a person who doesn't believe in, in many of the, the, the dogmas, um, that I've kind of supported musically, sure. I feel like I've, yeah. I've felt the same thing that those people felt. I just didn't make mm. that that other connection with like a person dying for my sins or or whatever, you know. Um, but I felt like I was there with them. Like I felt that thing. It's an undeniable thing. The goosebumps thing is is incontrovertible in a lot of ways. And so yeah, so I'm after that. And I think that that feeling has very deep, long roots that predate any of the associations we could ever possibly hope to make with that feeling. I think that feeling is just that feeling and it in itself is sacred and you know, you can make the associations you want to make. Because the bottom line is, sorry, a Dylan or a Joni Mitchell song, which is written with this intention and sung with this intention, another person could have the same intention 
But if they're not making beautiful music, you're not going to even reach the point in which you're going to try to create that association. Do you know what I mean? Like Absolutely. someone there, how many people have tried to write songs that say the same thing that Joni Mitchell said effectively? Yeah. <laughs> and and you don't you don't even go to that space because the song doesn't sound good enough for you to like feel the tingles that try to make you explain it. Yeah, absolutely. Now you touched on a couple things, which again could be an entire podcast series of success, of fame, of value, mm. or what was the or self worth. Yeah. Now, a lot of us as musicians, especially in the digital age, especially in the in the age of of likes and followers and all that, which you know, whatever it's it's good, it's bad, it's both, whatever. A lot of people tie their self worth to their successes or how they define success, because some people will define success as a number of followers, as a number of likes, as a number of views on their YouTube videos. What have you done? to define success for yourself. And then the follow-up to that would be how you define your self-worth so you don't get caught up in that trap that many of us get caught up in. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a very uh, very interesting set of questions. I, I think, how do you define your self-worth, or sorry, how do you define success? On paper, I would say that I define success as having the freedom to do whatever I want to do musically and to be able to survive enough to continue doing that thing. Yeah. Right? I, that's great. That's my on paper response. Yeah. But I, of course, get frustrated when I see someone who I think is not real getting a lot of attention or sure. when, you, you know, I mean, this kind of thing about justice, you know? And, and on paper, I would say, don't, take a second to think about justice, about what's fair, what's right, who deserves this, who doesn't deserve that, because it's, it's, it's really an exercise in futility. Absolutely, you know, because the world works the way it w does and every action has consequences. And that I think is a healthier way to look at life in general, but definitely life in the music business is like, don't think of it as what's right, what's wrong, what's deserved, what's not deserved. Think of it as like, somebody did this and therefore, this happened, you know, yeah. and just think about it as like action and consequence and don't assign a kind of moral, um, judgment, um, to it. Yeah. But that's like I said, those, these are my on paper responses that I know are true, but I'm definitely a human being and I get, you know, upset and frustrated and jealous and, and I feel bad about myself. And, and then in other moments I feel great about myself, you know, because I feel like I tap into that thing that I'm trying to tap into all the time. And, um, and that's just a part of being a musician and part of being human. And to answer the second question, to kind of tie it in, I first off, I try not to base my own feelings of self-worth on, on any kind of statistic or analytic or, or um, anything that can be kind of like quantifiable in a number, you know? Yeah. Um, I really try to think about self-worth first as starting as me as a person, about how I treat people and and how I make people feel and just the little decisions you make in your daily life to try to be a good human being, you know? Um, and then musically, to treat music like any other element of your life, that it deserves time and energy and respect and 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 it deserves that you try your best all the time. And sometimes you try and and you don't do your best and that's okay you know, I think. Yeah. 
you don't have to qualify with I think. You're totally right. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I, you know, I feel like I'm right when I say all that stuff, but then, you know, I can say that. And an totally, hour later, yeah. I, I'll, I'll log on to Instagram and then like everything in me just does or says or tells me the opposite of what I just told you, even though I, I feel like what I told you is correct, you know? And that's why I took two years off social media. You know, I just started again in January because I was launching a solo record and I needed, quote unquote, which of course you don't need to do anything, but I felt that it would be beneficial for me to get back on after a couple of years. But the truth yeah. is I was so much happier when I wasn't, you know, when, mm. when I couldn't log in. Yeah. It was great. God, it was great. I felt normal. The time passed slower. You know, it, it, was, mm. it was really nice. It was really nice. I'm going to go back as soon as I can to that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's funny, man. There's We play mind games with ourselves and when other people that we're looking at have no idea, even it's like sometimes you I'll watch a video. I'm like, really? This person has hundreds of thousands of likes and views on this. Their time feel is awful. Yeah. And that's what this video is all about. Yeah. Is their time feel. But it's like, oh, well, maybe that's my interpretation of what I think this video is about. And a hundred thousand people aren't wrong for liking something. There's something about it that they like. Right. You know, like if there's a song that's in top 40. There's a reason why there's a billion streams on that song. I, it might not be for me. That song is not made for me to listen to. But a billion people aren't wrong for liking that. You know, so I, that's been kind of my like, okay, yeah, I might not like it, but it's just not for me. Exactly. And I think that, you know, beyond that, it's like there is a reason, you know, and, and we as musicians or whatever. No, I should say we as Corey and Michael have this instinct to be like, oh, well, something should be popular because of its quality in this set of <laughs> in this set of criteria that we hold sure. dear. You know, it's a, actually a very highly specific way of imagining justice. You know, and mm. and it, and it's kind of inherently flawed to approach it that way, even though it's the absolute most natural thing in the world. And if you get three beers in me, you know, and we start talking about <laughs> pop music. All I'm going to contradict all of the deep shit that I've tried to say in the last, five, you know what I mean? It's going to, it's all going to, all the ugliness is going to flow out in that way of that like kind of judgmental, like it should be this way because that's what's good to me. And, you know, yeah. Yeah. I mean, a song's exactly a billion people can't be wrong. They might not be listening to it because it's good. They might be listening to it just because advertising works and because a bunch of money was behind it. Or they might be listening to it because to them maybe sure. it's just as important that the person looks good as sounds good or 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 timing or whatever, you know. I mean, there's always a reason and and I think the it's where we make the the mistake when we start saying right, wrong, deserve, doesn't deserve, should be, shouldn't be. That's that's the yeah. issue, you know. Which, by the way, I say that all the time. I just totally. try not to say it on podcasts. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so you have objectively had a successful career. That's not accurate. Uh, there's no, <laughs> there's no, no there's there, no way there that, are, there that are, you couldn't. <laughs> there are plenty of rubrics by, by which you could, you could say that I have not had a successful career. By like, you know, a, a school or a, any kid growing up sort of like definition i don't know like our like inherent idea of just like the basic like oh is this a successful musician whatever i mean I, C combat it however you will we don't we don't need to go down that road i'm okay. setting you up you're being humble okay so <laughs> i'm i'm curious as far as snarky puppy is concerned 
as far as Bucante, your solo stuff, all of that. But especially from early on, I feel like, and and this is this is what kind of laid the groundwork, pun intended, for ground up. <laughs> I'm curious what you think YouTube played into your success. Oh, I mean, YouTube was our absolute number one driver of of listener interest. Yeah. You know, I mean, viewer interest, I would say. It was funny because the reason why we started doing the whole thing of like making records and recording studios and filming them with the audience, wearing the headphones, it was because we had done three studio records and we were touring and people kept telling me after the gigs, you know, our audiences of 12 would come up to me after the show and say, you know, I don't really like the records, but when I see the band live playing, I have a really good time. And like, I get it, you know, I get what's going on, but I don't really get it when I'm when I'm listening to it, you know? And so people would say, you know, well, maybe, maybe you should make a live record. And I was like, I hate how live records sound, you know, like, you know, and I kind of made a joke that was like, if I make a live record, it's going to be in a recording studio, you know? And I was with our drummer at the time, Spud, and we started talking about, we're like, actually, maybe we could just do that. Maybe we could make a live record in the studio and bring the audience in instead of us going to them. And then we have the sound that we want, like a good quality studio sound. Yeah less compromised than a live gig plus the live energy of playing in front of human beings that are sitting in front of you and knowing that you can't do overdubs you know and playing with that kind of energy that you play with every night on stage and how do we represent it of course we have to film it so that people understand it the way that they understand it when they see it at a gig and so it was really Mm -hmm. just kind of like a one plus one plus one equals three so let's just give people three you know um and that's how we did it and YouTube was the vehicle. Um, and it was also this kind of golden moment in which everybody knew what YouTube was and was using it, but it hadn't been around long enough for it to be oversaturated with like bedroom singers and like, yeah. you know, makeup tutorials. And do you know what I mean? It was still like, it was like the wild time of like shoes, you know? I don't know if you remember that video, yeah. but you know, this was like the stuff that was, <laughs> yes. that, that was on, that was on YouTube at this time, you know? Um, so it was still kind of like a, you know, wild west in a way. And and so we got in in a very opportune moment. I'm not, I'm not taking anything away from the work that the band did and, and the thought that went into it, but I would, yeah, yeah. the timing was, and the circumstances which were beyond our control were absolutely elemental in the, in the, um, in the formation of like our, of our, our like careers as, as a band, you know? Totally. That is so obvious to me. And it seemed like that was, I mean, for Wolfpack as well. So that's the other thing is that a lot of people will compare Wolfpack, Snarky Puppy, totally Dirty Loops. And mm. it's like, well, musically, they're actually very different. And I think vision wise, mm. there are certain things that are very different certain things, of course, that are very similar. And there's, um, I think we honor very similar things as sure. far as what we're shooting for. We're, we're shooting at the same dartboard, but it's just like we're shooting for different things on the dartboard. Absolutely. And I think just, oh, what, because we're live band in a room recording, it kind of gets lumped together and it's kind of muso-focused. But it's interesting to see how people categorize different types of music, how people categorize genres of music and how we just kind of like need that. Like in my head, I still think of Headhunters, Weather Report, Mahavishnu Orchestra, 
you know, like <laughs> there's so many things of, of early fusion that I just like put in my head the same way. So it's like, it's interesting to see how YouTube has really launched in a way, a lot of people's careers and like oh, entire yeah. livelihoods. I mean, it was completely essential, you know, and we were also using it, you know, Facebook to push out those YouTube videos, you know, yeah. um, it was a coordinated assault, you know, on, uh, on our, at that time, completely non-existent audience, you know, and I remember the first time that I, I went to Europe to visit my girlfriend at the time, maybe this is 2000 and like nine, maybe I, I can't remember, you know, the band had been around for, for six years or something. And, yeah. um, but no ticket sales, you know, no, like touring was really rough. And I went to, um, no, actually, no, this must've been later. No, this must've been like, so it must've been 2011 or something. I, I, I can't really remember. And, and I was sure. in London visiting, uh, Bill Lawrence who plays keys in Snarky Puppy. And we were standing in line to see Jamiroquai's rhythm section to a masterclass in Camden. And we were in line and a, like a college age girl came up to me and said, like, are you the Snarky Puppy guys? And I looked at Bill and I was like, how much did you pay this girl? to say this because <laughs> until that moment not a single human being had ever come up to me and sure asked that question you know i mean even in our home state you know what i mean it was like yeah and and it was because one of the teachers at this school that she was going to she was going to a music school was using one of the songs from the first uh video album we made tell your friends uh he was teaching that song in a composition class mm. and so it was like youtube but also with this kind of education angle and like it kind of illuminated a lot of things for me in that moment of like, okay, wow, this is really our, our ambassador to the world. This kind of, this video format. It, yeah, it definitely, I mean, but you also think like Justin Bieber, right? Like didn't Usher find, like discover Justin Bieber singing on YouTube. It's like a lot of people owe their careers to, yeah. to, to this, to this network, you know? Well, I think it's part of why it, it's so perfect for what you do and for what many of us do is if you can actually hang, you just see it right there. It's like, exactly. here we are, we can hang and you're seeing it happen right. in real time. Like I would pay how much I would like, if I would give almost anything to see my favorite albums, like if I could see snarky puppy style videos of all the steely oh dan God, sessions totally. of all the beatles sessions totally that would be incredible yeah and now we're at the point where like people don't even they're like oversaturated you know they're like oh i just don't want any more <laughs> which is so crazy yeah. that we've gone from like oh my god access you know access yeah. to these artists and their processes and stuff and then now it's just like oh my god too much you know I remember where it started happening during the pandemic where everyone was just like, please no more live streams, you know? It's it's yeah, it's so totally. fascinating. It's so fascinating. But in that way, doesn't it make you think like it's kind of awesome that no one knew anything about Zeppelin? It like, you know, the mis the mystique, <laughs> yeah. the mystique was there, you know, like like Snarky Puppy built its career on being like the, you know, the band next door, you know, like sharing everything on on social media, like, yeah. you know almost like real world style. We were so candid with everything. Um, but then you look at Zeppelin, which are like, you know, what it's one of my favorite bands in the world ever. And they're the opposite, staying in Aleister yeah. Crowley's castle and, you know, weird signs that no one understands and, you know, just like no interviews. And, you know, I mean, it, 
so interesting. It's all the whole thing is the whole thing is interesting. I mean, everyone finds their path, and and I think also like as a young, well, not a young, but just an aspiring musician in general, you have to find the path that fits your art. You know, you can't just adopt Zeppelin's process or Snarky Puppy's process or Wolfpack's process and expect that to work for you because it worked for them. You know, it, yeah, it has to be custom fit to your art. Um, it all has to make sense. It has to be unified. The whole thing. You know. Yeah. And what's interesting too about yours is that I still will, people will ask me about my stuff. They'll ask like, hey, you're friends with Latieri. Do those guys just fake it on screen? Like, hey, does Wolfpack just fake it? I'm like, dude, do you think we have the top? Like, do you think, like, honestly, it would be impossible for me to like try to replicate my albums exactly note for note, drums, bass, like every fill, every little thing, every note from every solo. I'm like, no, it's not fake. We're just doing the video at the same time. Like, what makes you think that this is fake? Is that a, maybe a generational thing? Like, is it generally younger people who ask you that, or is it any? any? That, yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. It is. Because maybe it's a maybe that's a thing that like, I feel like the younger generations of musicians, the way that they're coming up is more like a studio way of coming up. You know, mm. like like that they're. The, the way that they create output is by like putting things on social media, right? So like they have control, yeah. they have control, right? They have control over over the yeah. environment, and so they're like honing that set of skills. Whereas like our generation, maybe we didn't really have that opportunity when we first started playing. Like the stage was our only sure. forum, so we were honing like a totally different set of skills. And I do believe that they're different sets of skills. I don't think one is better than the other because it's like we all totally. know you all know what it. it's like when a band that only plays live goes into the studio and it's like, ooh, sometimes it's like, okay, you know, you have to play differently and vice versa, yeah. you know? So maybe that that could be why. That could be why. Um, but I, I don't know. I guess I can't really assume what's in people's heads when they ask that. But yeah, I mean, I think for a person who grew up playing, I mean, Starkey Puppies are like a live band. You know, we've played, I don't know, 2,500 gigs maybe now, you know? So that's like where we live is on stage. So playing together is mm -hmm. like totally normal. Yeah. And then you just set a camera up. It's that easy, you know? Exactly. I saw you play live before I saw you on YouTube, completely by coincidence. This was probably... 2010, 2012, somewhere in there, 2013, I don't know. But it was at Rockwood Music Hall, and it was probably like a six or seven piece band. Could have been, yeah. Snarky Puppy, though, you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, 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 I, yeah, sure. Could, could have been. And <laughs> I remember thinking, this is such a freaking live band. Oh. This is such a great energy, and there's so much. Like, what's what's interesting is that uh, there's a lot of bands that are like hard tune bands, mm. like complicated for quote yeah. unquote complicated forms. Right. A lot of lines, a lot of things like involved parts. Sure. Sometimes that just comes across as like, okay, they're just playing this thing down and whatever. It's, it sounds very rehearsed. You draw, a, you, you have a really interesting thing where you're able to have all of that stuff, but really still maintain a great live energy. And there's so much seemingly spontaneity within your live show. Mm. How do you balance that? Because so many of your tunes are very composed. There's so many parts. There's so many things like form-wise, it's like, okay, this is, I'm following the form, mm. but there's just so many more parts. Like in Wolfpack, it's normally like maybe three sections to a song right. max. It's like A, B, A, B, A, B. And just like the nuances of those different sections 
are kind of what make it its thing. And then, okay, then there's a bridge and then it goes back to A, B mm -hmm. or whatever. Maybe almost a little more pop song formatted. But with your, so it's, for us, I don't know, it feels like it's a little easier to, because it's, it's just like, oh, the dynamics and some of the little things are what kind of change. But if, when you have more composed stuff, when you have more written material, mm -hmm. how do you still keep that live energy? I, I think what we're just talking about is level of comfort. Improvisation is not a thing that only happens, you know, when there's very little written material, I guess I would say, you know, that actually, yeah. if you give me, if you say, hey, vamp in A, I wouldn't actually feel more free than if you said, let's play Brick House, which is also an A, you yeah. know? I mean, it just depends on what the, the the ethos of the band is. If I'm playing Brick House with a cover band at a wedding and the dance floor is full of like drunk people, then yeah, I'm going to stick to the to the initial baseline and I'm not going to improvise so much. But if we're playing Brick House and Snarky Puppy, I would actually in a way feel a little more free because there's such, mm -hmm. there's such an established structure and that structure gives you a lot of information. And from that information, you can divine anchor points, right? So if the groove is like, to me, that actually like, I'm like, oh, cool. I have so much information to work with and improvise around rather than like vamp and A, here we go, two, three, four. You yeah. Know? So I might play like three, four, you know like so i'm around the groove and i'm actually using a yeah. lot of anchor points from the groove but i feel totally free you know or i could just play like a big downbeat on a but if i'm hearing that brick house bass line in my head even if i'm just playing the root on the downbeat of every bar if I'm hearing it in my head, I still feel like I'm playing Brick House. Sure. Like all of the decisions that I make improvisationally are going to be governed by my knowledge and my, my familiarity with that song. And so with Snarky Puppy, it's that way that, yeah, you know, there are very intricate melodies. There are very intricate bass lines. Sometimes the songs have a lot of sections. Sometimes they don't. But the bottom line is everyone's so familiar with the content that it's like, very liberated on stage. The the feeling on stage is very liberated that people can change the melodies. They can change the note lengths or they can displace things or they can reharmonize things or they can lay out or they can play where they normally don't play or like, but we know the song so well that it's still like a very safe zone. And sometimes it gets unsafe and that's where it really gets fun is when people make decisions that kind of like throw a kind of like things for a ringer and then and then people really have to kind of dig deep to keep the essence of the song but to still be reacting to the reality of what's happening on stage you know for me that's yeah. it's very fun it's very very fun but if it were my first gig with snarky puppy i wouldn't feel that liberated because i i wouldn't know the, sure <laughs> you know but after years and years of playing with the band everyone feels very free with the with the content so we're improvising all the time actually it's not like we just play the A and the B and then solo section. Now it's time to improvise. It's everyone is improv improvising every second. Everyone. Even if they're playing yeah. the groove that's on the record, they're playing it because that's the right thing for that moment based on what's happening on stage. And to me, that's improvisation. Yeah. All right, all right. At the beginning of the episode, you heard me talking about DistroKid. I'm going to mention him again because it's worth it to me. 
I really think that if you are an artist, you should have an easy and comfortable way to upload your music and get it distributed to all the streaming platforms like Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon, YouTube Music, blah, 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 all that stuff. You should have a way to do that. DistroKid makes it really easy. And also, they don't take a percentage. They do not take a percentage of your royalties. That's amazing. All they do is charge a yearly fee. I love it. I use it. If you're making your own music and want to put it out there in the world, I would suggest using DistroKid. That's that. Easy as that. Let's get back to the interview. When you play live, and I guess in your studio recordings, you have uh, a whole cast of characters, collective of people. How do you decide who goes on what tours, how big of a band you're going to bring out, all that sort of stuff? Yeah, that's an interesting question because... There's like 18 members, more or less, of the band, and, and, and we normally tour with between 9 and 11. Yeah. Um, three guitar players, five keyboard players, five horn players, um, three drummers, three percussionists. Really, the magic number is kind of like three in the band. So what we try to do yeah. is we try to give each member of the band roughly a third of the gigs of that year. Um, sure. And we try to book, you know, book them in advance, organize it well so that uh, so that gigs are roughly evenly distributed. I, I mean, it's very hard to do it um, perfectly. Um, and then for the yeah. there are certain players that kind of are more or less on every gig, or they get asked first for every gig because yeah. they were in the band the longest, or because they're in a position in which there aren't like three people trying to play one role. But like for example, Mark Latiri, yeah. who you know very well, plays roughly a third of the gigs of the year. Yeah, we don't do. I think you asked about rehearsals. We don't rehearse. Um, just normally on the first day of the tour, we get to sound check an hour early and just kind of run through things. But in general, there's like a high level of individual responsibility in the band that people, when they come on tour, they, they not only have they played the song countless times normally, but they also like do a little refreshing to make sure that we can just go right in. Yeah. Wolfpack is a similar way with rehearsal. Even notoriously, Jack loves just saying, yeah, the band has never rehearsed. Right. And it's like, I think that contributes a lot actually to the way that we prepare for shows and for tours. And like you're saying, the individual responsibility, but also that on stage, like it, you're getting a little more instincts and you're getting a little more, all right, ears up everybody. Yeah. Like, let's pay a little more attention. You have to pay more attention. Completely. Yeah. And I think that's healthy. I think that's like, you know. Man, uh, there's this beautiful orchestra from Holland that I mentioned earlier in the in the podcast called the Metropole Orchestra, and uh, I did an album with them. You did. That's right. You did. Yeah. So you know them very yeah. well. Was Jules yeah. was Jules doing it? Jules Buckley. Jules was involved, and but it was Vince Mendoza Vince. conducting cool. when I was there. I think Jules was. Uh, I don't. He was. Uh, he was on vacation or something, or he had, yeah. like was on sabbatical. I don't right. know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So Jules was with the orchestra for a long time, and I did two records with them while he was there. One was for Snarky Puppy, and one was for my other band, Bocante. And Jules has this incredible technique of like under rehearsing the orchestra. Like he rehearses them just until the point where they start to feel comfortable, and then he stops rehearsing and and goes straight to the gig. I mean, he even canceled yeah. like half a day's rehearsal once because he felt that the orchestra was right at the point, like that dangerous point, where they were just yeah. about to start to feel comfortable and confident, and he didn't want them to feel that way. He wanted them to be on stage, sweating, hyper-focused. And, and for me, I was like, I couldn't believe the confidence that he had in doing that. Yeah. But then we played, and yeah, like you said, ears are up. Everybody's like totally plugged in. And it was really, you know, it, there's an electricity in, in, in that, 
kind of environment that you don't get with a band that's over rehearsed, you know? I, I mean, I do think that there's kind of like a golden, a golden zone. You don't want to be too far on either side of that zone, but it was fascinating to me. Yeah. And then the worst thing to happen, which I have one particular moment, we played it on Live From Here with Chris Thiele, Wolfpack did, and we rehearsed mm -hmm. the day before, and their tech team, like you have to rehearse for that because the tech team needs to know, the radio team needs to know, like yeah. how long is this tune gonna be? We played our tune Dean Town, and at the rehearsal, it was one of the absolute most incredible music moments that I've ever been a part of. Literally everybody in the room, even everybody backstage, all the like everybody just kind of huddled in. It was just such a magnetic moment. Mm. It was just, it had so much of the thing. And then as soon as it was as it was over, it was like, ah crap. Yeah, we wasted it. We blew it. We <laughs> yeah, we blew it on the rehearsal. And yeah, Dart was like, it. this is why we don't rehearse. This is why we don't, you know, Dart was so he's like, man, yeah. I knew we shouldn't have done it. I knew I should have stopped this in the middle of when we were doing that. I was like, yeah, but. It, but also in that moment, it was it was so magnetic, it like couldn't stop. But nobody will ever hear that that sure. version of that. I mean, we have a version out from that show that was like good, but the like just so strongly potent musical energy and moment from the rehearsal can't be recreated because now it's like, oh yeah, we know the tune, we know the form. Chris knows the tune now. He knows kind of how we get through it. But he was weaving and listening and then guiding us in new places mm. and not that we couldn't kind of quote unquote fabricate that again but there is something about the under rehearsal that really creates a, a fun moment to to cat like something that could really capture lightning in a bottle if you will yeah and but i think that actually that's a a, a powerful moment and an empowering moment when you have that happen in a rehearsal because the temptation is, like you said, like what Joe said, is like, oh, we spent it. We spent our chip. Tomorrow, it's not going to be cool, right? <laughs> yeah. there's, there's that way of thinking about it. There's the other more common way of thinking about it, which is that was so awesome. Let's do it just like that tomorrow, which always sucks. Yeah. Then there's like the third thing, which is like the deep thing, like the miles thing of that was its moment. It was super special. Let's not even try to do anything remotely close to that ever again. And let's try to create an equally powerful but completely different moment the next time we play. Mm. You know, which is one of the most challenging things, I think, as a musician, is that when you take a solo and you're like, I finally did it, right? Like, I finally played a good solo on that song. I can never play anything. I will never allow myself to play anything like that ever again on that song. I have to seek a new path. You know, and I think that that's yeah. the thing that all of the like really, really heavy improvisational musicians and may, I wouldn't even say necessarily improvisational musicians are in touch with Coltrane, Miles, Mingus, yeah. Ella, Billy, you know, like I'm talking, I'm, I'm listing only jazz musicians, but you could go that way in, in, in many genres that there's this thing yeah. of like new day, new path, never try to yeah. recreate Never try to relive your glory day, you know? Like, go find the new thing. That moment wasn't amazing because of what happened. It was amazing because it was unique. That's the feeling that you got, yeah. actually, was that it was like a special, unique musical moment. So recreating that is a, like you're operating on a, like a false 
pretense, you know? <laughs> totally. And, yeah. And, yeah, yeah. And, and, and I know that feeling because it's like, man, you know, you, you, when you're on tour, especially you feel that contour where you just hit like mm -hmm. the, the band's sounding better and better. And then you hit this peak and you know the next night's going to suck. <laughs> <laughs> and it will probably, yeah. but I think it's still important to engage in that third mentality of like, okay, last night was like as good as it's ever been. And it's very possible that tonight will not be as good. But let's make it not be as good in a different way. You know what I mean? At least. Yeah. You know, and 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 I think it's a very important part of 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 being a live band, you know? Yeah. I love that. A lot of people think in order to be a band leader, you need to play a lead instrument or you need to be the one that's very obviously out front, mm -hmm. front, uh, front man, woman, entertainer, person out front. Now in many of the bands that you are in, you are the band leader. Uh, aside from Michael League, your your solo stuff where you're singing mm -hmm. and you have, it's much more obvious, like, yeah. oh, that's, I should be looking at that guy. Right. You know, like, but in, in other bands, like in Snarky Puppy and Bocante, you're playing bass. You're obviously the one kind of conducting on stage for those that are like, you know, I, if I see on stage, I can, I can tell who's the music director mm -hmm. or who's, who's the one kind of conducting, guiding the ship along. But from a position, and, and me as mostly a rhythm guitar player, like that's what I love about the guitar and what I feel like I bring that's compelling to the guitar. It's interesting, like how to find the balance between, okay, what does the audience expect? Does the audience need a band leader front person to like spoon feed them the entertainment factor or like the, uh, the, the focal point mm -hmm. or, you know, like balancing that with just playing my role in the band, playing my function in the music that I intend. Because, okay, I wrote this music, I arranged this music, or, you know, this is the music that I hear, but it's not all centered around me. Mm. I'm curious on your thoughts of being a band leader in that and speaking to those that think that they can't be a band leader unless they are lead right. fiddle. <laughs> totally. Well, I... I want to start by saying that I struggle and contemplate this every day. This idea of yeah. what works, what we know works, what has been proven effective versus what I want, which very rarely those two things are the same. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I know what works sure. on Instagram. Your face needs to be in every post. You need to do the thing that you do, pound people with the same shit and you get followers and it works. I don't want to do that. So I don't do it. And I recognize that I have less followers because I don't do that. Yeah. Or Snarky Puppy. I mean, when Snarky Puppy started, like now is like a good time for bands like Snarky Puppy to start happening because people are into it now. But when Snarky Puppy started, sure. jazz festivals wouldn't book us because we weren't jazz enough. And rock clubs wouldn't book us because we weren't rock enough. You know, we were like in this terrible middle yeah. no man's land. But the way that Snarky Puppy... Finally, after years and years, like a decade of, of complete obscurity, found the beginning of success was just from conditioning people. Mm -hmm. And that's that, that actually we think of it as like our audience is choosing us, right? So we have to create this thing that will make them choose us, like pick me for a kickball team or whatever, you know? Yeah. But the truth is actually we ch totally choose our audience, you know? We choose our audience because when I make a certain kind of music, I'm instantly eliminating a bunch of people who hate that kind of music, right? 
And now yeah. I'm speaking yeah. to a certain group of people who may or may not like my music, right? And then yeah. going in deeper there, you start to kind of like make people accustomed to things, you know? You start to condition them to like what you do. Mm -hmm. I would say D'Angelo conditioned me in many ways when I first heard Brown Sugar, you know? And definitely when I heard Voodoo, there were things happening on those records that I had never heard before. They were, they were new to me. But after listening mm -hmm. to it a few times, it created a taste in me that I started looking for those things in other artists, whereas previously I wasn't looking for them in anyone. But D'Angelo conditioned me yeah. to want those things. How about going through your form yeah. a whole time before the vocal comes in, right? That's some stuff that maybe used to happen in the 70s, but he does that on that record. You know, He plays the whole form of a yeah. song before the vocal comes. It's like a minute 50 with no vocal, just playing the harmony, no melodies, no solo. No, you know, And it's like, I love that. I didn't think that I wanted that in my life, but I want that in my life. So I think it just comes down to this thing of like trying to tell yourself, don't succumb to the pressure of what you think people want from you. Because also you don't know. You don't yeah. know. And, and like I can assume that people want to see my face and me playing an instrument because that's what Instagram is for people who play instruments. But if I don't want to do that and I do that, what people are subconsciously ingesting is a lack of passion and belief in my presentation to them, right? Because I don't mm. want to do it. I'm doing it because the algorithm says that's right, but I don't want to do it. So subconsciously, they're also eating that in the way that we eat a growth hormone in a piece of beef, even though we think we're just eating the cow, right? We're also eating the growth hormone because that's in them. And you ingest that. And people also ingest that. When you do shit that you don't believe in as an artist, people ingest the lack of belief, you know? And so... I, I believe mm. very strongly that as artists, you know, I'm a huge fan of, of that David Bowie interview of like never play to the gallery. You know, the artist should always be a step ahead. The artist should always be telling their audience what their audience should want rather than trying and flailing to give them what, what they believe that they want, you know? Um, and it's not this like yeah. super philosophical thing. It just makes sense. Do what you want without thinking about what people will think about it. But it's increasingly difficult these days to do so, you know, I think with the instant feedback that you get versus like in the 70s where you'd have to wait for the record to come out and then another month for reviews. And now it's just like you do anything and there's five people telling you you're, you don't deserve to exist. And that's a hard thing to come to combat and to, and to fight out against, you know. But that would be my advice to anyone who says, I don't play a lead instrument, then make playing percussion in a band as a leader cool. Nate Worth did it with Ghost Note. Yeah. He's not the first person that did it. You know, I mean, yeah. you know, obviously in salsa bands, the percussion is a little more feature, but like, you know, there's a lot of, anything is possible if you believe in it and, and, and it makes sense artistically and you want to do it. It's possible. So just do it and make people like it. No, don't go the other way around. You know, that would be my, my advice to those people. I love that. You have a lot of people around you. First off, like you said, with your band, with Snarky Puppy, but then also the several different bands that you have. There's more than just Snarky Puppy that you have. You also have Ground Up the label, Ground Up the festival. And I can only assume you also have, you know, a team of other people around you, whether it be booking agents, managers of whatever type of role, uh, staff that do whatever sort of thing, tour managers, that sort of thing. What do you look for 
and and also people that you've signed as far as like artists on your label. What do you look for in the people that you have around you, both from the creative side and from the functionality side? What's important? What qualities are important to have in order to be a part of your team or in your crew? Yeah, I mean, I think the word uh, to use would be community because I, I do think of all the members of all the bands, the crews of all the bands, the label yep. staff, the festival staff, the artists on the label. I really do think of mm -hmm. it like a community, you know, and in some respects, a family, you know. Yeah. Um, so I think you could more or less create the same list of attributes, desired attributes in those people as you would in any other community or family. You know, you want people to be generous. You want them to be open-minded. You want them to be understanding and, and loving and caring. You want them to be passionate, you know, about what they do. But I think the main thing is that everyone has to love music. I would say that's the thing that's common mm -hmm. from our light tech to the COO of our label to all of these things, everyone is really obsessed with music. And this is like a, a powerful starting place as, as I'm sure you know, you recognize as, especially as a citizen of the United States in this moment in which, you know, that it's a very fractured country in 2021. And yet you can sit yeah. down with someone who feel, feels the exact opposite as you politically and talk about Jimi Hendrix. And 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 mm -hmm. and also when we travel and we speak with people that don't speak our languages, you know, we communicate with people that don't speak our languages. Music is always this kind of like icebreaker and 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 common ground. Um, so that for me is the most the most important thing. You know, I would say they have to love music and they have to be like a good, caring, loving, understanding person. And we have a lot of different personalities. You know, of that like 60, 70 people that are in that group that you just mentioned. Um, yeah. But I think they all get together on that. They can all get down with that. And I don't think there are any two people that won't talk to each other or can't communicate or like, <laughs> which is kind of yeah. a miracle, you know, um, yeah. that, that, that that's the case. But I think also the thing is like also in the U.S. we have this habit of looking at work like it exists in a vacuum. It's like, yeah, I totally hate that guy. But, you know, I mean, he brings in good numbers, you know, or whatever. But like. I don't like I don't look at it like that. Like I spend my whole day at work, right? With music, but that's yeah. that's my life. That's not my work, you know? And like there's a great quote that somebody much smarter than me said one day. They said the way we spend our days is the way we spend our lives. Mm -hmm. You know? And and it's true. It's like you can't like look at your life without looking at like the minutes of your day. And and we're spending hours every day at work, on tour, sitting in airports, sleeping in hotels, waiting in, in, you know, hotel lobbies. And if you're not cool with those people that you're sharing those experiences with, your, your days don't just suck. Your life sucks. You know, your life yeah. is miserable, you know? So I think of it in that way. It's like, I want every minute of my life to be good, not just for me, but, but for all of the people that work with me. You know, all the people in my community, I want them to, to enjoy their jobs. And sometimes I have to make decisions that actually like negatively, may, you know, in quotations, impact them because it, it's actually for their physical and emotional and spiritual betterment. Like, you know, our organization is full of people who are really hard workers and believe they can do anything. And they can, but sometimes at the expense of their health. 
you know? And so sometimes I have to be like, you can't sure. do this job anymore. Just do this job. Don't, don't do both these things anymore. Um, and as time yeah. goes on and I get older and everyone gets older, you know, that becomes a more relevant issue, you know, trying to make things good for everybody. Yeah. I dig that. Moving forward, what are you trying to say? What are you trying to communicate to your audience? Like what vision do you have for, uh, well, the three, the three projects that Snarky Puppy, Bocante, Michael League, and then the other thing, any other ones, those are the ones that I'm most familiar with that, that you're doing. What are you, what are you moving forward? What do you want to say with those three projects? What are you trying to accomplish? Um, well, I think like you, you know, I mean, you play in Wolfpack, you have your solo project, you know, you work as a side person, a session musician, a, a, all of these different hats that you wear. I think, you know, with each hat comes a different objective, you know? So I, I would say that each of those projects yeah. you named plus other projects, like, you know, I'm, I'm the music director and producer for David Crosby's Lighthouse Band. I have a very different objective in that work than I do yeah. with my solo project or Snarky Puppy, you know, I'm trying to like totally. preserve an icon's legacy and also push them forward in a way that, that, that they're not, that is not common in people of that age and stature, you know, and mm. that's David's objective. You know, da David wants to be pushing and progressing until the moment that he stops breathing. I mean, you know, and I think he's always felt that way, but I think he feels it. Yeah even more now, you know, about to turn 80, I think with each year, the urgency increases to be innovative, which is like the most inspiring thing in the world. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But that's a very different objective than, yeah, you know, my solo project has its own thing. Snarky Puppy, you know, we have an interesting plan for the next 10, 15 years about what we want to do and and how we want to represent our music and, and ourselves. And, you know, Bocante has its own mission. I think it's kind of like, it's really like made to order in that way, you know. It's like uh, mm. uh, each thing has its own has its own goal. When I'm producing an artist, you know, because that's been my my goal this year is to do twelve records, like one record a month, so twelve records in 2021. And you know, those records, like I just finished a record doing uh, producing a record for a group of Syrian and Turkish Kurds, recording wedding and folk songs that only exist in a wax cylinder in a museum in Berlin, you know, that, that like recorded in 1902, yeah. you know, my goal for that project is like very different from producing the Ataka Quartet, you know, this classical quartet that won the Grammy for best chamber ensemble recording last year. Becca Stevens's husband, Nathan Tram is in that quartet. And they mm -hmm. wanted to do a, an album string quartet, all electronic music by electronic composers, but as a string quartet, you know, I mean, those mm. objectives are so different. But that's like the really fun and stimulating and beautiful thing about being a producer is like you be you 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 have like a different brief every project. You become a different person. You tap into different parts of your own potential. You realize different weaknesses that you have. And for me, that's mm -hmm. like the most stimulating thing in the world. It's it's infinitely cooler than being on tour with the same band for twenty years. Even though that has its beauty as well. Like I I I, I love the the new thing every every so often. You know. Um, it stretches you. And then the beautiful thing yeah. is you bring back what you've learned from every single one of those experiences. You bring that back to your band of 20 years. You bring that to the next project you produce. You bring that to your daily life, you know? Totally. I love that. That's great. 
Okay, because it's a guitar podcast, people want, just to close off, people, people want to talk gear. They want to know about gear, right? We love gear. We do. So you're a Mark Bass guy, right? Do you have your own signature Mark Bass amp? I do, yeah. It's called the Casa, C-A-S-A. It's like a, it has like a gold grill. It looks like really vintage. They make it in a few different styles, 810, 410, combo. I nice. I don't know why the Mark Bass brand has not caught on as much with the guitar players. Their brand is DV Mark for guitar amps. It's awesome. It is absolutely my favorite. Yeah, it is my favorite guitar amp. Awesome. And I just don't know why it hasn't caught on as much. I use the Eric Gale's Raw Dog. Yes. It's dope. You know, I, I think it's because Marco is like a, like a whirlwind worker. He mm-hmm. like he wants to do everything, and actually totally. everything that I've seen him do, he's done well. He sent me a bass last year, and I was like, "This bass sounds awesome," you know. I mean, but the I think it's like that same problem we were talking about with Instagram. It's like you have to put your face in every po- you know. It's like this thing of like if you do a lot of things really well, it's like it takes time for people to figure that out. You know, I think yeah. especially with oversaturation of social media and 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 limited visibility, you know, limited space for visibility, it's like the people that do one thing over and over tend to to move fastest. And um, Marco is is I think maybe too talented <laughs> in some ways, or yeah. he's or he's indulging in his talents um, in a, in, <laughs> in a way that people aren't hit. But I'm with you, man. The DV Mark sound awesome, man. Yeah. 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 Love them. So if people, I haven't had a chance to check out your amp. Uh, I know for, this is kind of inside baseball. I think Mark Bass has in the U.S. an exclusive with Guitar Center. So I don't know how it is in other countries, but how can people check out your amp? Where's the best place to get your amp? Yeah. I mean, I I think, you know, if you go to the Mark Bass website, it'll tell you where the dealers are near where you live. Sure. But yeah, 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 it should, it should be in most guitar centers. Um, if not, you know, yeah. hit up, you can hit up Mark Bass, but yeah, I love it. I also, when I play, cause in Bocante, I play, uh, Oud also like baritone electric guitar and Oud and the DV Mark acoustic is like awesome. That's my go-to. It's beautiful. It sounds awesome. So, I mean, yeah, I, I love all, I really love all their stuff and, and I don't have to say that. I only have to say that I love their bass stuff, but I really love all their stuff. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's awesome. Yeah. It felt like they came out of nowhere totally. and like. It felt like one year, all of a sudden, everybody had Mark Bass gear. It was lightweight. It sounded freaking well, yeah. awesome, and it's so it's priced very affordable. Totally, and the the weight thing is like, especially if you're on tour, you know, your crew, yeah. your crew will give you so much love <laughs> for not hauling around yeah. like a '70s Ampeg SVT, even though that's like the most incredible bass amp ever. You know, to be able to pick something up with one hand is 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 in, and not just yeah. if you're on tour. I mean, just if you're playing playing at any bar, or, you know, loading out of your car, it's like, man, it's so awesome. It's such a great, yeah. I I can't say enough nice things. And also, I have to say, because people don't know this, you know, there's no way to know. They're really good people. Such good. Be- I mean, you feel like family when you go mm. hang with them and visit with them. When I see them at Nam or when I see them in Italy, it's like, you know. It's very rare that an employee leaves from that company. And I think that that tells you something also, that they, mm. they take very good care of their people. They take it very seriously. It's beautiful. Mediterranean yeah. way of life. You know, it's awesome. I love it. Yeah. 
And do you play an 810? Is that your... On stage, yeah, I used to do something really weird. I used to play like a 410 and a 48 on top of it combo. Okay. Which was very interesting. Um, but then I, I went to the the 810, yeah, 810 and the Casa head. But the Casa is also the speaker. The Both are the signature model. Cool. Is there something, like, is there a, a way that the air gets pushed that you prefer certain speaker types? Or what's your... You know, I'm I'm woefully ignorant uh, about mm. like technical elements of. I mean, that's why I play a P bass. You know, it's like more than a tone and a volume knob. Like I start to short circuit mentally. You know, so I, I'm I don't really know. I I do know that Marco gave me two different kinds of speakers. Like he was like, check this one out and check this one out. And the one we chose was the one that I really liked. And you can probably look at the specs online, but it was years ago, so I don't remember. But um, yeah. You know, I mean, the main thing for me is just the 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 visceral reaction to the sound. And what I love about, yeah. the, about the Casa is that you get this like super bumpy old school clarity, but it can also handle like a mini Moog Model D or like my bass with like a crazy octave fuzz. And it's like totally yeah. cool. You know, it really hangs with both. And and for me, that was the most important part of the brief, you know, is that like it needs to sound modern and old school at the same time. And and I love it. And the fact that it does so and with a solid state, you know, makeup is incredible because it makes it lighter. Yeah. Makes it less prone to break. You know, it, it's awesome. It's a, it's a tank. I love it. Yeah. I think to your point, that's totally fine. Like a lot of people think they need to have all the technical know-how and all the exact specs of everything. I love hearing that you're just like, I don't know, this is what I love. Yeah. I tried a bunch of things. This sounded amazing, felt amazing. That's why I use it. I think some people don't have that connection with their gear as much. It's like, no, 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 no. I, I have to have something with this compound radius and this specific tone pot in order to sound good. It's like, well, maybe you do, but not everybody does. And like, yeah. maybe you don't. Just like find what actually right. feels and sounds good to you. <laughs> But yeah. yeah. Well, I don't have anything else going for me. So all I have is how it makes me feel because <laughs> I don't have any of the knowledge. So, I mean, yeah, basically Mark was like, okay, like, you know, just try this, try this, tell me what you like better. And because um, ultimately when you're on stage, no one cares. They only care that it sounds good and sure. makes them feel something. So it has to start with you. You know, you have yeah. to feel that. Yeah. I love that. Awesome. Well, Michael, thank you so much for being with us. I am super excited about all the stuff you're doing. I love your your new music video for Michael uh -huh. League. Thanks. I love your new uh, your new stuff that you're doing, branching out and singing. I can tell it's it's new or different territory for you, and it's fun for me to see you constantly exploring new space, music from around the world, music of different cultures, music with different size ensembles. You're really an inspiring oh, person man. and musician for so many of us. Thanks, Corey. Well, likewise, man. I mean, I I. When Ground Up told me that you had asked about doing this, I was like, yes. <laughs> just, I mean, if, awesome. if for no other reason, just because, you know, seeing what you've been doing and, and always from afar is strange because we've worked with so many of the same people, but never at the yeah. same, same time. And, and so to have this opportunity to connect with you has been, uh, yeah, it was really a blessing. So thanks for, for the invite and thanks to Jason and everyone at Premier Guitar for, uh, for making it happen. I'm, I'm, it was really a, a pleasure and an honor to be a part of it, man. Of course. Well, let's let's hang and play in person sometime, man. It'd be fun to fun to play some notes together. 
Anytime, anytime. Let me know when you're around here. <laughs> I'll do the same Minneapolis. There you have it, Michael League. What a cool dude. I really hope that we get to hang together, play some music in person sometime. It's going to happen. It's bound to happen. It is destined to happen at this point. Thanks so much for hanging with us. If you're unfamiliar with the Wong Notes podcast and this is your first episode, there is a plethora of amazing interviews back. I Look, for me, I enjoy doing this podcast because I get to ask some of my favorite musicians in the world questions that I have about their life. And a lot of people come to me and they're like, hey, will you ask this person about this thing? I think, dang, that's a really good idea. I'm going to go do that. So if you got ideas, hit us up, Wong Notes Podcast on Instagram. Send us a message. Send us something. Let us know what you're thinking. All right? And hey, don't forget, I got that guitar course out. If you're a guitar player, go check it out. I promise you, I gave you that men's warehouse at the beginning. I guarantee you, you will be a better player. You will practice better. You will be more precise. Your rhythm will be better. Your time will be better. No doubt about it. Okay? Check it out. Just search Corey Wong Guitar Course. And have a wonderful week, okay? I'm going to try to do the same. Peace!